last week. This time last week I gave an overview of uh, one very important role that virya energy or effort plays in our practice. And I talked about how this word virya is sometimes translated as energy and sometimes as effort, as in heroic effort. And I uh, gave an overview in general terms of some of the ways that this quality of energy or effort can become unbalanced, sometimes in the direction of not enough effort, sometimes in the direction of too much effort, and then some ways that we might bring it back into balance. And tonight I'd like to continue this exploration by zooming in a bit more closely to talk more specifically about effort as one of the eight factors of the Noble Eightfold Path, which I think of most, as most of you know, is the path of practice that the Buddha laid out as a means to find real ease, happiness, and freedom. So this evening I'd like to explore right or wise effort, sama vayama, to give the Pali term, as it's described in the context of the Noble Eightfold Path. And here it's described, it's defined very specifically in terms of what are known as the four great efforts, which I'll outline in a few minutes. But I want to just acknowledge again that some of you might already be experiencing some reactions, perhaps to the topic of effort yet again, and to all the deep conditioning that that can bring up that I touched into last week. So just by way of perhaps reassurance, all this effort that we're making leads eventually to what's sometimes called effortless effort. So a little bit paradoxically, we put all this effort in so that eventually it becomes so refined that our practice takes almost no effort at all. It's also possible that some of you uh, might be having a little bit of a reaction to all these numbered lists that keep appearing throughout the teachings, the three this and the four that and the five the other and the six and the eight and well, who gives two hoots? It's a, but there's a very practical reason for all these numbered lists. Again, the Buddha's teachings originally were given orally. They were transmitted through speaking and listening and memorizing. And so these numbered lists are a device that helps with that. But in uh, contemporary contexts, lists generally are associated with relatively mundane things. So we can hear these lists and part of us just thinks in terms of, yep, go to the bank, pay the phone bill, pick up the dry cleaning, don't forget the milk, that kind of thing. So for me, the, these lists at times can sound quite abstract because in some ways they, they are. They're very distilled concentrations of some of the key teachings, really stripped down to their bare essentials. So for me, it was helpful in some ways to think of these uh, numbered lists as a bit like camping food. I think, you know, when you go hiking, you can get dehydrated food that's um, very light and portable. We can take it anywhere, but we can't eat it just as it is. We need to mix it with water, cook it, heat it in order to have something that's edible and nutritious. And I think in a similar way, these numbered lists, we have to unpack them. We have to take them into our own lives and to explore how does this work for us. We have to, in a way, metaphorically chew on them and digest them to get the nourishment and find something useful to live by. So if you are feeling a bit overwhelmed by all these different lists and these terms, just an encouragement, you don't have to take them all in at once. Just sort of let them wash over you, trusting that over the next few days or weeks, perhaps months or years, they'll start to make sense and be useful. 
And just one other small caveat about numbered lists. I know in my own experience, when I know that there's going to be five or seven or ten, sometimes we're ten minutes into the talk and I'm thinking, wow, we're only up to number two. <laughs> seven more to go or whatever. So again, by way of reassurance, although I'm loosely using the structure of these four great efforts, I'm not going to try and talk about all of them in the same amount of detail. So all that said, uh, in my last talk, uh, when I, I mentioned how whenever I would hear this phrase, right effort, I'd unconsciously assume it meant grim determination. So later on, when I read more of the texts and found out what was actually meant by this, what, how the Buddha defined more precisely right effort, it was quite reassuring. And just as an overview, it's very specifically about working with mental states. It has four parts, four different aspects of practice that we can develop. And the first two of these four great efforts are all about working with unskillful mental states. Whereas the last two are about working with skillful mental states. And I think it's worth reading the actual words from the sutta because although they're, although they're quite complex, they um, sometimes convey nuances that me paraphrasing them might lose. So I'll read each of these four efforts and then um, go into them in a little bit more detail. So when the Buddha was asked to divine right effort, he says first, here a person rouses his or her will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his or her mind and strives to restrain the arising of unarisen unwholesome mental states. So it takes quite a lot of effort even to say that. But the, so the first effort, the first effort to paraphrase is the effort to prevent unskillful mind states from coming up in the first place. And as you heard from the way the Buddha phrases it, this does seem to take a lot of effort. The language here is very emphatic. We're instructed to make an effort, stir up energy, exert ourselves and strive. But wait a minute, wasn't I saying last week that striving was a problem? I just want to be clear that it's excessive striving that's the problem or over-efforting that's the problem. Because it is possible to strive and to make effort in a balanced way. And just very briefly, one way of telling the difference between uh, when we're moving more into over-efforting is to pay attention to the amount of self-referencing thoughts in the mind. So if our effort is accompanied by a lot of thoughts about me and my practice and how well or how badly I'm doing and whether I'm looking good or bad and what other meditators are thinking about me and when I'm going to get enlightened and so on, that's probably symptomatic of the effort becoming a little unbalanced. On the other hand, there are times when we can experience more of the effortless flow that I referred to earlier, when the practice almost feels like it's doing itself. And all we have to really do at that point is keep getting out of our own way. And from the outside, these two practices might look the same. They might seem like the same amount of sitting and walking, but the inner relationship between them is very different. So in using this emphatic language about effort and exertion and striving, I think the Buddha is just pointing to the fact, the fact that it's not easy at first to prevent these uh, challenging, unskillful mind states coming up. He's being realistic. And I think if you think back to your first uh, longer retreat, at least if it was anything like mine, it might have felt like one massive multi-day, multiple hindrance attack. So this often when we first come into contact with the contents of our own mind, it can be pretty shocking to 
see these unskillful mind states really running rampant and ruling the roost, as they say. So the first effort is to try and prevent unskillful states from coming up. And the second effort, again, I think points to the fact that how realistic the Buddha was, because he knew that at times, in spite of our best efforts, we do fall into some kind of unskillful state. So the second great effort, he says here, a person rouses his or her will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his or her mind and strives to abandon unskillful mental states that have arisen. In other words, we make the aband- we make the effort to abandon or let go unskillful mind states that have come up. First, of course, we have to recognize that they're there, and then we need to know how to help them to release. And I'll be talking a little bit more about that later, but first I just want to give you the overview of each of the four. And the sequence of these four efforts is significant because they describe the arc of how our practice unfolds when we are able to engage with these different tasks. So we begin by clearing out the afflictive states and then almost literally there's more room in the mind for the skillful states to start to arise. So here in the third effort, we change our attention to the skillful states and the Buddha describes it like this. Here, a person rouses his or her will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his or her mind, and strives to develop unarisen, wholesome mental states. So this third effort encourages us to actively cultivate skillful mental states. For example, qualities such as the four Brahmaviharas of metta or kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity, or the awakening factors, mindfulness and investigation, energy, rapture, tranquility, samadhi, and equanimity. So these are just a few examples of the skillful mind states that we want to learn to recognize and to encourage. And as this happens, we can shift to the fourth great effort, The Buddha says here, a person rouses his or her will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his or her mind and strives to maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen, not to let them fall away, to bring them to greater growth, to the full perfection of development. So this fourth great effort is to maintain, develop, and perfect skillful mind states once they have arisen. And just a caution here that this isn't about uh, clinging to pleasant mental states because that would just be reinforcing the unskillful energy of greed. So I interpret this phrase about bringing them to the full perfection of development as really pointing to the whole lifetime of our practice. So the task here is to keep establishing the mind in these skillful states and doing what we can to maintain them so that over time they become more and more the default setting of our hearts and minds. So right effort here is all about developing appropriate ways of relating to our mind states. to our thoughts, our emotions, and our moods, all of the mental activity that so often filters the way we experience the world. And for many of us, getting a handle on mental activity is not something that we're used to because in mainstream society, I think we have quite a confused attitude to our thoughts and emotions. On the one hand, we can tend to take them very seriously and to believe them and to let them define who we are. And I think we've probably all had the experience of going along, feeling quite happy and at ease, and then suddenly a 
particularly negative thought seems to pop out of nowhere into the mind. And in that moment, our whole world changes. Our day is ruined and we spend the next few hours feeling miserable. But what is a thought? When we really look at it, it's just an electrical pulse in the brain, a couple of neurons firing together. There's no real substance to that process at all. The only substance it has is what we give to it. And yet so often, I think I'm not alone in this, we do tend to get caught in these electrical pulses. So on the one hand, we give them more weight than they deserve. And on the other, as a society, I think we tend to give more emphasis to our actions than to our thoughts. We focus on externals and what's tangible and out there and not on the inner world that is invisible for the most part. But this is opposite to the emphasis that the Buddha gave to thoughts because he understood that everything we do arises from an intention in the mind. So we really need to get clear about what's happening internally before we speak or act rather than hopefully, hopefully, rather than waiting until we've said or done something stupid and then recognizing that we'd got caught in anger or hatred or lust or whatever it was. So over and over again, the Buddha emphasized the enormous power of our minds to cause harm or happiness. So I'd like to read you just one example from the suttas. There are many of them, but this one is from the Ekadama Sutta. The Buddha is reported to have said, I don't envision a single thing that when undeveloped and uncultivated leads to such great harm as the mind. The mind, when undeveloped and uncultivated, leads to great harm. I don't envision a single thing that when developed and cultivated leads to such great benefit as the mind. The mind, when developed and cultivated, leads to great benefit. And then he goes through the same sequence in relation to suffering and stress, saying that when the mind isn't cultivated, suffering and stress are the result. And when the mind is cultivated, happiness is the result. So coming back to the four great efforts, we need to know whether something is harmful or uh, unharmful, skillful or unskillful. And in the Buddha's teachings, the definition of whether something is skillful or unskillful is quite simple. Does it cause harm? Harm to myself, harm to others, now or in the future? So this working definition is quite simple, but it's also very profound and we can spend our whole lives refining it. And we begin that process of understanding harm through making this commitment to non-harming by taking the five precepts that all of us have taken on this retreat. We make this commitment for our own and everyone else's benefit so that we can live together here in this retreat community as harmoniously as possible. And it can be easy, I think, maybe to take these uh, precepts for granted, thinking, yeah, of course, I'm not going to kill, I'm not going to steal or lie. And on one level, these precepts might seem so fundamental and obvious that we uh, overlook their benefit. But when I was here on staff, I had the opportunity to volunteer in a nearby prison And so I had this very direct experience of moving between two communities that had a very different relationship to non-harming. So here, as I think you know, uh, all all of us, including the teachers, all the staff, everyone who visits IMS is asked to undertake the five training precepts. But in the prison setting, most of the men, apart from the ones who came to our group, did not have that commitment And some of them were actively looking for opportunities to break the precepts. And you can probably imagine, or perhaps you've experienced for yourself, the kind of climate that that creates. 
not very conducive to really going inwards, exploring the heart and mind in the service of deepening wisdom and compassion. So here we have pretty conducive conditions. So, as the precepts become more refined, we start to move from this basic commitment to refraining from into their more positive expression. So things like the first training to refrain from killing living beings can be expressed as, I undertake the training to practice compassionate action. So it's no longer just about not doing things. It's an invitation to um, perform positive actions. Similarly, the training to undertake, to refrain from taking what's not given becomes, I undertake the training to practice contentment. And we see the same movement from, you could say, refraining from the negative towards cultivating the positive in the four efforts. So that first one again, the first great effort to to restrain the arising of unarisen, unwholesome mental states. How do we actually do that? And why? So why we do this is to support our samadhi, uh, stability of mind, to help the heart and mind to become calm and clear, stable and balanced. Because if the mind is constantly agitated by afflictive states, there's no way we're going to be able to see clearly into our hearts and minds. And there's no way that the deepest, most transformative insights are going to be able to arise. So we make the effort to protect ourselves from afflictive states so that we can experience the temporary ease and peace that eventually leads to lasting ease and peace. And how we practice this first effort is through the action of restraint. As the instruction says, we restrain the arising of unskillful states. And just being here on retreat is one very powerful way of doing this. Here, at least to some extent, we're uh, secluded from the usual bombardment of experiences out there that so quickly give rise to reactivity of all kinds. Here, our hearts and minds do have a chance to relax and to start to get used to the quieter states of ease and contentment, happiness and peace that are more our natural state of being. But as I think you've all experienced, even here on retreat, there are times when unskillful states do take hold. And the first line of defense to try and prevent this from happening is, you can probably guess, mindfulness. And that's one reason why we keep emphasizing continuity of mindfulness. That relaxed, steady, knowing of experience moment to moment because it's when there are gaps in our mindfulness that the hindrances and the afflictive energies have their chance to to take root, to take hold. Now, sometimes when people hear about continuity of mindfulness, they think, oh, that sounds exhausting, so much effort. But actually, it's almost like a trade secret that it takes more effort to not be mindful than it does to be mindful if we're approaching our mindfulness in the right way. So it's not about being hypervigilant. I think we've already given the example from Sayadaw Utejaniya of just the effort it takes to know the two hands touching. It really doesn't take that much effort at all. And when we can practice mindfulness in that way, then it becomes sustainable for long periods of time. So sometimes the analogy is used of um, trying to boil a kettle of water. If we turn on the gas for a couple of minutes and then turn it off and walk away, come back half an hour later, give it a blast for five minutes, turn it off, walk away, it takes forever to the, for the water to boil. And there's a kind of a friction in that stop, start, stop, start. And we can experience that too in our mindfulness when we 
get really focused and then go and space out for an hour and take a nap for two hours and then give it another blast and then collapse again. It actually takes more energy to do that than just this steady maintaining of mindfulness. So mindfulness is the first line of defense to start to see as things are arising, when they're arising, okay, hindrances are coming up, difficult energies coming up. Sometimes, though, we don't realize as those states are arising, it might take a while before we recognize, oh, whoops, (laughs) that was some kind of anger or ill will or a multiple hindrance attack. So sometimes I offer uh, what I call post-mortem mindfulness, which is really... It's not technically mindfulness, it's more a form of investigation, but it's that acknowledgement that sometimes we do, we might need to go back and see how did that happen? How did I end up in that state? And if we trace it back, we might learn to recognize what were the original triggers? What were the causes and conditions that led to that fit of rage or lust or boredom or whatever it was? And the more we can do that, the more we can learn to protect ourselves from that situation happening again the next time. So just to give a few simple examples that you might see here on retreat, perhaps we notice a familiar pattern of aversion coming up every few days and we start to recognize it seems to be strongest after lunch. So we look back over what was happening at lunchtime And we might recognize that in all that extra stimulation of being in the dining room, the mindfulness leaked away and we got caught in, say, judging mind or wanting mind or spacing out mind. So once we understand the triggers, then as a protection for ourselves, we might set a stronger determination to guard the sense doors. We might choose to not look around quite so much, to not notice what everyone else is doing. Because in the bigger scheme of things, it's probably not that important how many pieces of cake any of us are eating. And in a similar way, if we came to the retreat with friends or partners, we might experiment with sitting in a different location from them just to give them space and perhaps to protect ourselves from getting caught in wanting to communicate with them. So we can save ourselves and others a lot of agitation if we all just respect each other's silence and try not to get involved in things that are not so much our business. And I'm speaking from experience here because uh, I had a pretty painful lesson in this on my very first three-month retreat here at IMS. It's a, it's a bit embarrassing, but I'll share it with you as an example of what not to do. So on this retreat, I had a, a meditator job that involved working with a team of people. And a couple of months into the retreat, one of the team had to leave uh, for health reasons, I think, and a new person came in. And the staff showed her what to do, showed her around, gave her an orientation. But for some reason, I took it on myself to be helpful to her. And I didn't break the silence, but I did sort of gesture to show her where different things should go and communicated a bit through body language about uh, some things I thought she needed to know. And I thought I was being helpful But later on in the day, there was a note on the notice board with my name on it. And when I opened it, it said something like, sorry for making you angry. Now, at that point, my mindfulness wasn't very strong. So I didn't just note seeing, seeing, unpleasant sensation in the body, unpleasant Vedana in the mind, painful emotions arising, confusion and anxiety and embarrassment strong sense of self being activated. Instead, I just I went back to my room and I spent a few hours you know, drafting all these different notes explaining why <laughs> I hadn't been angry and I was sorry she felt that way and I hoped that our next work session was going to be okay and so on. And finally, I finished this two-page note and I... <laughs> 
brought it back to the notice board and there was, but I noticed there was a new notice on the board and it said, yogis do not write notes to each other. <laughs> and so there was a big red arrow next to it. And again, I didn't note seeing, seeing, seeing. <laughs> I went through another whole storm of reaction and spent even more time thinking about how the note was obviously about me and now I'd annoyed this yogi and I'd annoyed the staff and, I, and the teachers and so on and so on. And I really didn't know what to do about this for quite a few hours and then later on I saw this yogi, the one who I apparently made angry, walking down the corridor and I realized, oh, her room is not that far from mine, so I'll just write her a short note and slip it under her door. <laughs> and I had this idea that somehow if I kept it really short, it wouldn't be as much of a sin in quotation marks as if it was long. So I just wrote, don't worry, I'm not angry with you, and put it under her door. And the next day in the work session, she seemed more relaxed, and I thought, okay, it's worked. But the day after that, I saw her going into her room and I realized that I'd got the wrong room. <laughs> and I'd actually put this note under the door of some completely innocent person <laughs> who would have just out of nowhere received the ultimate passive aggressive statement. Don't worry, I'm not angry with you. And I never found out who that person was. It could actually be one of you. So. If it's you, I'm really sorry. So again, in the bigger picture of things, that's a relatively trivial example of what can happen when we don't practice sense restraint. And on retreat, you know, we often do give relatively simple examples with the idea that then back in our ordinary lives we can understand how the same general principles apply. Because in the context of a long retreat like this, we tend not to spend a lot of time talking about the more complex and challenging situations that are going on in the world out there. And this isn't because we're somehow avoiding or denying that reality. But it's more because a long retreat like this is really designed for a special purpose. We're trying to provide supportive conditions that help to develop the samadhi and the sati that I um, gave instructions in this morning. So providing conditions that really help the stability of mind and the clear seeing because these are the best conditions for the most transformative insights to arise. So on a long retreat like this, we have a rare opportunity to experience the benefits of what the Buddha referred to as seclusion. And throughout the teachings, this quality of seclusion is presented as a very necessary first step on the path to true happiness. So we take on this physical seclusion as a support for mental seclusion, seclusion from the hindrances, from the fires of greed and hatred and delusion. For many of those, this first, as though this first uh, step can seem counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense that giving up ordinary pleasures, such as perhaps that second piece of cake or that long, long nap or a smile from my partner, how can that possibly lead to happiness? But in the Dhammapada, the Buddha is reported to have said, if by giving up a lesser happiness, one could experience greater happiness, a wise person would renounce the lesser to behold the greater. So there's an invitation to give up the smaller fleeting happinesses in the service of a deeper and lasting and more sustainable happiness. This is wisdom, according to the Buddha. And he also repeatedly said that we shouldn't just take his word on anything, that we need to try these things out for ourselves. 
and to see if what he says is true or not. And this is true of the invitation we have here to practice seclusion, simplicity, slowing down, renunciation or relinquishment. Sometimes though, because of uh, wider social conditioning, the societies or the cultures that we have grown up with, we can sometimes misunderstand this simplicity almost as a kind of punishment, an exercise in sensory deprivation or isolation, perhaps in some way intended to try and toughen us up. But in actual practice, it's the opposite. When we understand how to relate to seclusion skillfully, it softens us. In the silence and the simplicity, we start to become less dependent on ordinary sense pleasures for our happiness. We become more intimate with our own hearts and minds. And through that, we are able to connect more fully with our own humanity. And then when we come out of these uh, protective conditions, we're better able to relate skillfully to others too and to navigate the challenges of our everyday lives with greater calm and clarity and compassion. Seclusion then is practiced as a support for samadhi, stillness of mind, which leads to wisdom. So here's another short quote from the Dhammapada that illustrates this connection between seclusion and deep happiness, even joy. Having savored the taste of seclusion and the taste of inner peace, one who is free from anxiety and evil savors the joyful taste of the Dhamma. So returning to this uh, structure of the four great efforts, we can understand seclusion as one way to protect ourselves from having the unwholesome mental states come up in the first place. But as I said earlier, the Buddha was a realist and he knew that at times this first line of defense might not be strong enough. So the second effort is to abandon unwholesome mental states that have arisen. In other words, when we recognize that our minds have become affected by some form of greed or hatred or delusion, we need to know how to help that state release. And this can be a very powerful learning edge in our practice because abandoning does not mean getting rid of unwholesome mental states, getting into a fight with them and trying to uh, force them to go away. I think abandoning is closer to letting go or at times letting be. So this instruction to abandon unskillful states is not intended to reinforce some type of self-improvement project. It's not about taking things personally at all. And again, you may remember when I talked about, I gave the instructions on working with the third foundation, mindfulness of mind states. The language here is similar. It's very impersonal. So it doesn't talk about your unwholesome mental states or say that you are unwholesome because these states have arisen. Instead, one of the first strategies in working with these states is to let go of any form of identification with them, to recognize that these states are impermanent. They arise due to causes and conditions, and they're not me, not mine, not who I am. So what we're aiming for here is a balanced response, one where where we're neither repressing on one hand or feeding on the other, not denying the state, but not also wallowing in it or making it stronger. And this is challenging because by definition, these unskillful states get in the way of clear seeing. So I'd like to take just a few minutes now to give a few strategies, uh, ways of approaching difficult mental states uh, that have been useful in my own practice. And these are some techniques that I've used particularly for those more afflictive or intense states that stick around. 
So for more ordinary passing day to day thoughts that just arise, stay for a while, pass away, we don't need to do anything about them. This uh, coming and going of mental phenomena is completely natural. We don't need to interfere with it. We can just notice, oh, you're thinking, thinking, until some other object of awareness comes up. At other times, though, we might notice recurrent thought patterns that keep coming back over and over and over again. And it's these thought patterns that are often... um, driven by some underlying painful emotion that hook us in some way and we find ourselves repeatedly getting lost in them. And on retreat, because the mind is generally quieter and because we do have more time just to be with our minds, sometimes these patterns come up very clearly and strongly and frequently. And at times there can be this sense of, oh, not this again. And consciously or unconsciously, we contract, we tighten up, we brace against or resist whatever that state is. So the first strategy is one I've borrowed from the Zen teacher, Charlotte Joko Beck. And she refers to it as the mantra of ABC. It doesn't get much more simple than that. ABC stands for a bigger container. And it's really the invitation to make more space around that difficulty, to counteract that tendency to sort of chomp down on it, clamp down on it and resist it. So with this, when we feel that first sense of tightening or contracting, if we can remember A, B, C, oh, make a bigger container. And some of the ways I do that in the body is just, okay, sit up straighter. Broaden the shoulders. Take a deeper breath. Physically try to make more space in the body. Depending on the intensity of it, I might open my eyes and see the bigger space in the room. Or I might imaginatively visualize putting more space around this difficulty perhaps imagining it dissolving through a fine, warm energy or a golden light. So it can be somewhat creative in how we make this space, how we create this bigger container. And one analogy that's sometimes used here is, um, Greg referred to it the other day, it's the difference between putting a wild horse in a small corral or letting it out into a bigger pasture. The overall energy is the same, but the impact is very different when the wild horse has more space. So this strategy of ABC is one uh, way of working with difficult emotions. And the first step really is to begin to recognize what they actually are. And in this sense, the technique of mental noting can be a very useful tool. I referred to it very briefly the other day, how sometimes just being able to name what the specific emotion is can help it to release. And I also mentioned that sometimes it can be hard to get that clarity. So With the mental noting, we might need to almost audition a few words. To It's like throwing darts at a dartboard. We might get a few that are in the general terrain before one hits the bullseye. So, for example, we might have some vague sense of an unpleasant or uncomfortable emotion, and we might think, "Is, is this sadness? So we're sort of feeling into the body and just dropping in a few notes. Sadness? Mm, Not quite. Grief? Anxiety? Loneliness? Oh, it's loneliness. Bullseye. And once I know the particular flavor of the emotion, then I have a better sense of how to take care of it. The second benefit of this mental noting technique is, uh, according to neuroscience, the part of the brain that is making the mental note 
is not the same part that's experiencing the emotion. So for in the nanosecond that we're using that note, we're in a different part of the mind. And this can help to sort of perforate that black cloud of the emotion by just knowing, okay, anger, anger, frustration, and so on. And in doing any of these practices, we're not where the invitation is to sort of drop down out of the cognitive analytical part of the mind and to come more into the body to find that more intuitive embodied understanding of what's going on. Because sometimes if we get caught in intellectual analysis, we might find ourselves just uh, wearing the same old grooves in the mind, solidifying or deepening the identification with the experience. So as much as possible, the invitation is to connect with the body and the heart center. And having said that, there are times when we need to really take care of how much we expose ourselves to these challenging emotions. So in the medical profession, they talk about titrating, which I understand as being about adjusting the dose of a medication so that we give just the right amount to suit the the patient's condition. If we give too much, the medication might have side effects. On the other hand, if we don't give enough, it's not going to have any benefit. So we need to experiment to find the amount that's going to be effective to help the patient's immune system to heal. And in the same way, when we connect with these more challenging, painful mental states, we might need to take in just a very little at a time to begin with. So a friend of mine talks about these as what she calls homeopathic doses of reality. So just touching in for a very tiny micro dose of what the difficulty is. Sometimes people think this is cheating though, or they fear that if they um, practice this technique of touch and go, that in the going, they're missing a chance to work through these issues once and for all. But at least in my own experience, sadly, (laughs) it's rare that any of these things disappear absolutely forever. And most of the time, there will at some point be another chance to work with the thing, perhaps on a lighter level. But as so far, it's rare that something vanishes forever. It definitely gets weaker, but we don't need to worry about losing that one chance. (laughs) So this practice of touching and going is when we notice the mind state, we might note it, know it, okay, guilt or shame or whatever it might be. Thank you. And now I'm going to go. And then we tune into what else is happening in our experience particularly aspects of experience that might be either neutral or pleasant. So for example, I might notice, okay, shame. Yes, I know you, and now I can feel the warmth of my hands touching and the softness of the shawl against my skin. There's the bird singing outside. Yep, there's another pulse of shame and There's the feeling of my feet in contact with the ground and the coolness of the air against my skin and so on. So we're opening up to more of the full spectrum of our experience rather than clamping down or fixating on just one sliver of it. And again, we need to be aware too of the attitude that we're bringing to that mind state. So this question that we've been asking quite a few times in the instruction, how am I relating to my experience? And often with these very deep-seated and painful mind states, I know at least for myself in the beginning, I had a very unconscious agenda, which was I was somehow trying to force myself to be with my deepest emotional pain in order to get rid of it. 
And I didn't see the aversion that was underneath that attitude. And it took me a while to realize that it's really not helpful to drill down into a difficulty. In fact, sometimes this is an unconscious form of violence to ourselves. So that's another reason why uh, I've been emphasizing with some of you in the meetings this need for self-compassion. Self-compassion is a very powerful antidote. I think of it as almost like a universal solvent. It can dissolve and help to release any of these challenging mind states. In fact, all four of the Brahma-Vihara practices can function like this. And their capacity to release unskillful states is uh, emphasized in a passage from the Majjhima Nikaya. And I, I like this passage because those of you who are familiar with the suttas, you know that often the, the presentation is somewhat neutral. But this passage actually has exclamation marks in it. So it says, cultivate the meditation on metta, exclamation mark. For by cultivating the meditation on metta, ill will disappears. Cultivate the meditation on compassion, exclamation mark. For by cultivating the meditation on compassion, cruelty disappears. Cultivate the meditation on sympathetic joy. For by cultivating the meditation on sympathetic joy, listlessness disappears. Cultivate the meditation on equanimity. For by cultivating the meditation on equanimity, anger disappears. So perhaps after this, long flow of words, this invitation to cultivate equanimity might be a good place to stop for now. Because coming back to the original starting point of these four great efforts, we're at the pivot point or the balance point now, the point where we shift from working with unskillful mental states to skillful ones. And that's a whole other topic that I don't have time to do justice to now. So I plan to explore those last two uh, efforts maybe later. But you don't have to wait for my next talk to start going into skillful states. Really feel free whenever you can. Do make that effort to help the skillful states to arise, to be maintained and to be perfected, all in the service of ever-deepening wisdom and compassion. So thank you for your attention. Let's sit quietly for a moment or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.